Welcome back to the Working on Wellbeing podcast by the World Wellbeing Movement. The podcast that allows you to be a fly on the wall during conversations with the world's leading wellbeing experts. I'm your host, Sarah Cunningham, and today we'll hear from a man who has worked directly under three UK prime ministers and who has first-hand experience of putting well-being at the heart of policy creation. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd first like to take a moment to thank our series sponsor, S&P Global. The world's leading organisations rely on S&P Global for the essential intelligence they need to make confident decisions. S&P Global, powering global organisations. Now, when you think about government, what do you picture? Depending what country you're from, you might think about your country's prime minister or Taoiseach or president. Or maybe you're picturing the minister for finance. Or maybe you're visualising the physical building that the politicians in your country work from. Buildings, of course, which are often landmarks in their own right. But chances are you're not thinking about the large group of people who, when push comes to shove, play an integral role in the day-to-day -day running of the country. In the UK, half a million people work for the over half a million people work for the British civil service. And between 2005 and 2011, that was led by today's guest, Lord Gus O'Donnell. Gus served as cabinet secretary under Prime Ministers Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and David Cameron. And when he stepped down from that role in 2011, the job had become so complex that a decision was made to split the roles and responsibilities between three jobs. Gus essentially wrote the manual on how the UK cabinet functions. And he led or played a key role in leading the UK through a number of enormous challenges. Gus is also a proud wellbeing advocate. He is the chair of Pro Bono Economics. He was instrumental in the founding of the UK What Works Centre for Wellbeing. And we're so proud that Gus is a very valued member of the World Wellbeing Movement's Board of Directors. Lord Gus O'Donnell, you are so welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, well, we're delighted to have you here. And I'd love to start, we have an international audience, so I'd love to start by asking you in your own words to explain what is the role of the UK's Cabinet Secretary? Sure. Well, it's basically to help the Prime Minister to work with his Cabinet, his or her Cabinet, uh, and Parliament in order to uh, be successful as, as a government. And the interesting part, which we may well come on to, is what does success constitute? So my role is partly policy advisor, partly organizer, partly deliverer. So it's, it's quite a, uh, a wide-ranging role, but very satisfying. Incredible. And I definitely want to come on to uh, what does success equal. Um, but I want to go back a little bit further. Um, I'd love to understand where, because of course you are a huge well-being advocate, when you first came across the term well-being and what does well-being mean to you? Well, it wasn't, you know, if I go back in my youth and think about what were the motivating things about what am I going to do with my life, the word well-being just wasn't used, right? Mm. I, I grew up, youngest of five kids, in a house named Douay, 
Uh, this was my parents who basically thought that they wanted one of the five of us um, to be a priest or a nun and devote themselves to improving everybody else's lives. My four older brothers and sisters, alas, had failed in this. So I was sent down to the church to kind of sit there and wait for the word from God to say, you're going to be a priest and you're going to devote your life to helping others. And being a very literal boy, I didn't hear anything. So I came back and said, I'm sorry that he doesn't want me and there's some other role for me in life. But it it made me think about, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And for me, it was about public service. It was about that whole essence of religion, which is do unto others as you would like them to do unto you, which is common across a wide range of religions. And it made me think about, can you improve people's lives? And you can do that through individual actions, but actually you can do so much more if you can help governments achieve success, brackets, assuming they've got the right measure of success. I mean, so interesting. And, and thank you. And let's get to that measure of success. I mean, what do you feel the UK's government or any country's government's role is in helping with the happiness of people? So for me, it's all about, and here language matters, I always say to people, building better lives for people, helping them build better lives for themselves, uh, improving their overall feeling about themselves, which is in the in essence what we do through well-being because you know the the measures we use are asking people about how satisfied they are with their lives, how worthwhile they feel they are, and of course their happiness and anxiety as the, as the two sides of their kind of instantaneous feelings. So for me, government should be about that measure, which is to my mind, an incredibly democratic measure because not government saying this constitutes the good life. This is what you should be doing to be happy. And here are the things uh, that it's about. It's basically saying, what is it that matters to you? You know, it's, it's and, and it's fundamental things like it's about security and safety. It's about a planet that exists that, and a planet that exists for our children. You know, there's some really basic stuff that are very, very important. And individuals can do their little bit, mm -hmm. but actually governments, and it's literally global in this sense, governments have to work together to produce outcomes which can deliver those you know, safety, uh, you know, security, all of those important things. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, as you say that, I reflect on what well-being means to me as well. And mm. I've recently moved house and I feel such gratitude for having a roof over my head. And I know that's not something that everybody can take for granted. Um, you know, I look at, you know, troubles in different parts of the world and just being able to live, live in a time of peace, being able to feed your family, all of these things constitute part of well-being. And you talked about well-being measures. And I think that's mm. really important. I'd love you to talk about that a little bit more if you don't mind. So does every country in the world now measure citizen well-being? No, <laughs> alas. I mean, there's the World Gallup poll that that uh, does a whole range of countries, but yeah. some governments are better at this than others. Um, I'm, I'm proud to say the UK is pretty much a leader in this, uh, but you know that it's growing. You know, you, there's New Zealand, there's Iceland, there's Scotland and Wales. There's there's various countries around the world that are starting to think more carefully about how we measure this because for me it's like if you treasure it measure it you know it's classic so and and as an economist and a bit of a 
an evidence nerd, you know, I want data, I want to prove things, I want to test hypotheses about what really matters for people's well-being and what is it that means that this group are, are, are really happy and this group aren't. I, I come back to your point about security. You know, one of the first times this crossed my mind is one of the prime ministers, you didn't mention my first prime minister, it was John Major. And one of the things that he really cared about was Northern Ireland, where at that point people were blowing each other up, were shooting each other, and there just wasn't that basic security. And for him, that was massively important. And, you know, one of those moments when you think, you reflect and you think, God, that really made a difference is when we did a thing called the Downing Street Declaration. We got all the leaders together and it was the first, it was the start of the foundations which Tony Blair then built on to deliver the Good Friday Agreement. But it was about basic security for people and, and people forget, you know, we're seeing it now in the Middle East. We take for granted that we live in a country, most of us live in countries that are basically safe. But now you're looking at Russia, Ukraine, we're looking at Israel, Palestine, we're looking at, uh, you know, that whole area in Africa where there are countries where we know the well-being levels are terribly low, mm. um, where there's just no proper government and there's no security for people. Afghanistan, you know, where we're finding that, you know, women's rights and basic security stuff isn't there. And that is kind of fundamental. You don't get well-being without any of those things in place. Yeah, gosh, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I want to go back to the measurement because mm -hmm. it, it is it, it is so key. We had um, Professor Lord Richard Layard mm -hmm. on a previous episode and we had a really great conversation about, first of all, he defined GDP, gross domestic product, because of course you're an economist, he's an economist, I'm not, and some uh -huh. of our audience will be, some won't. Um, nice. But he talked about why that's a flawed measure of societal progress. And I know that you have spoken passionately about the shortcomings of GDP um, and the importance of going beyond GDP as a measure of societal progress in favour of a measure of a nation's well-being. Can you expand on that a bit, please? Sure. Um, so GDP was, was invented by a guy called Simon Kuznets, an economist, back in the 1930s. And one of the things he said is, for God's sake, don't use this as a success measure. Mm. It's a measure of activity. So it adds up all the things we do. And the example I always give to people is like, so, you know, volunteering, you know, I, I chair a charity. The time I spend on that um, doesn't count in GDP. All of the people listening to this, if you spend any time working with a food bank or helping people uh, at your local church or community, that doesn't count. That doesn't show up anywhere. But if they were all to take to the streets to start selling illegal drugs or, or get into prostitution, that would count in GDP. So GDP would go up. That's bizarre. I mean, another way I think about this, as, as I was uh, coming down here today, I was thinking, I was looking at my watch and looking at my steps yeah. and thinking, yeah, we all kind of like, if I get to my uh, 12,000 steps, then I think that's success for me today. But actually... It's not really success. What if the steps result of the fact that my bike had a puncture and yeah. I had to walk it home? You know, it's like these are activities and we really need to understand that success should be about something more fundamental. It should be about how do we feel about our lives? Do we feel that we are making a difference? And of course, one of the things, you know, that moment with John Major on the steps of Downing Street when we had that first Downing Street declaration, 
you kind of feel you've done something for other people. Yeah. And you've made the world a little bit better in your tiny little way. And I have no illusions that my part in this whole process was tiny. But it's moving towards something which makes a huge difference to people's lives. And that's got to be something you feel makes you feel good inside, which is, you know, why you feel your life is satisfying and worthwhile. Absolutely. And I find it really interesting. We can get the inside track talking to you because you've actually worked for, for multiple prime ministers and multiple governments. Um, have you seen how well-being is considered and well-being policy is considered change between different governments? Yes. I mean, the first time it was really seriously considered, to my great surprise, was with David Cameron. And I was meeting David Cameron when he was the leader of the opposition. So it was in the run-up to the election in the UK in 2010. And we have a thing called access talks where the Prime Minister of the day allows you to go and talk to the opposition to work out what their policies would be so that you're ready for them on day one if they happen to win the election. Okay. So I'm talking to David Cameron and I'm thinking, you know, standard Conservative Party stuff. And he says, well, I'm, I'm really interested in this uh, well-being and behaviour change. I'm thinking, wow. I'm like, this is incredibly unexpected. And I had worked with a lot of economists on behavior change and on well-being, with, particularly uh, with David Halpern, who was then uh, doing a lot of work for us on behavior change. But also, when David and I sat down, I said, well, why do we want to change people's behaviors? And it was about improving their well-being. Yeah. You know, so... Why do we want to help people stop gambling, uh, think about their diet better? It's because that will improve their well-being. They will live longer, healthier, happier lives. So it's like, okay, so we need these two things together. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the bizarre thing is what took off was behavior, the, the behavioral part, behavioral nudge units around the world, you know, with Dick Saylor, who got the Nobel Prize for it in economics. So every country ends up with behavior change, but they didn't, they missed the fundamental point is, well, why are you doing this? And that was about well-being. So David Cameron was up for us doing both. So he set up a nudge unit and we set up the measurement of well-being. And it was, it was, you know, the first country in the world to have really large scale samples where we ask people those four key questions about, is your life worthwhile, satisfying, and the happiness and anxiety questions. Mm. And so since about 2010, we've got this massive, great database. So during COVID, we were in one of the best places to understand the impact that COVID was having on the well-being of the nation, on the well-being of NHS workers, on the well-being of teachers and children, you know, all of those sorts of things. But um, that was hugely important. And so, yeah, David Cameron, and he, he got up. I remember in the Treasury, and this is one of those moments as well, where you think, wow, that's really important, and said, you know, he, he used the Kennedy quote, which I'll, I will repeat for your listeners. He said, GMP measures neither our will nor wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And, you know... He got it that there were broader measures. The tragedy of this story is that they didn't follow through. And the problem was when they came in, the, the budget deficit was very large. They committed themselves to reducing the budget deficit, which meant that there were cuts in public spending, which meant that, uh, 
you know, which adversely affected well-being, no question. But what they didn't want to do was, and, and, and GDP wasn't going very fast. And so they were worried that any attention on well-being would be just seen as a cynical measure to move away from uh, just GDP growth. So it went into abeyance, alas. Okay, that that and you know mm. it's interesting you say that because when I look at the countries that are mm. doing a good job, making progress in terms mm. of going beyond GDP, it's countries like New Zealand, Iceland, Finland, uh, recently Australia, and um, their treasury published a, a handbook for how to operationalize those measures of citizen well-being that you've been talking about for policy creation. Um, do you think the UK are now lagging behind? No, 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 okay. no. I, I like oh come on, Australians, you know the. The, the definitive guide on how to do this is the Treasuries, the UK Treasuries Green Book Supplementary Guidance on Wellbeing. Um, that would be my, my kind of gold star for how you do this sort of stuff. No, but it's great Australia's doing it. It's fantastic that more countries, and uh, my goodness, this would be brilliant competition to have between countries as to who's furthest ahead. What we haven't got is, is, is leaders of our government actually finding the language and this is where i say the language might not be well-being it might be words like building better lives or whatever mm -hmm. but actually using what richard would call the science of well-being to say actually the things that really matter to people and how you improve it you know looking at things like good work yeah. uh family relationships you know we know all things mental health there's a massive policy agenda yeah. and if a politician were to grab it you know that how often have we heard oh they don't have a vision I mean, and I cry out for this. This this could be the fantastic vision of a leader that wanted to make a difference, to say, you know, I, I want a country where we help people lead better lives. And what that means is we're going to do the following things. We're going to tackle mental health. We're going to look at unemployment. We're going to look at bad jobs. We're going to, you know, think about all of these things, which we know, which we have brilliant research work for, thanks to Richard and Jan and people like that. That, that make a huge difference. Yeah, thank you. And you, you referenced Richard and Jan. So for listeners who are not familiar, um, they've Sorry. both been previous guests. So thank you. Do listen into the first podcast uh, we published uh, last year was interviewing Professor Jan Emanuel Deneve, mm -hmm. who is a co-founder of the World Wellbeing Movement. And then uh, quite recently, we interviewed uh, Professor Lord Richard Layard, who's a co-founder of the World Wellbeing Movement. Um, I don't want to focus just on the UK, though I know obviously um, your role when you were Cabinet Secretary was UK-focused, but we very much have an international audience. Um, we have people other than my mother listening from Ireland. Uh, we have people from various other countries uh, in the EU. We have quite a few people in in the US and, and other countries. Um, do you think there are countries who are lagging behind um, or countries who are particularly taking leaps forward? So there are it's not just at country level, I should stress. So if you look at what's happening in, in, the, in the US, for example, there are lots of things happening at state level. Um, there are lots of things, really good initiatives on well-being. Uh, um, Carol has just written a book called Power of Hope, which I strongly recommend to people. I think it may be coming out Is soon. Is it Carol Graham? Carol Graham. Yes, uh, yeah, yes, yeah. Who, who will be over here quite soon, I think. And, and you know, that there's... There's amazing work that's been done on, you know, some some surprising aspects of well-being within the states and and some of the policies, you know, and some of the things that have gone drastically wrong, you know, Angus Deaton and uh, and and Case have Deaton and Case book on um, 
uh, deaths of despair. You know, it's like looking at the real misery end of this. You know, opioids and all of that. So there are there are big things happening in different countries. Uh, sometimes not at not at federal or central government level, but if you look at a lot of the Scandinavians, you know, surprise, surprise, highest well-being. But um, think about these things a lot. Mm. And if you look at, they may not use the language of it, but they're doing the policies which would flow from a desire to improve well-being. So, in a sense, you know, looking at those that actually have it in their budget and use the words, maybe missing the point that actually, if you're doing the right policies. Use your own language. That's fine. You know, I'm not bothered. But make sure you care about mental health. Make sure that all the things that the science is telling us you need to do to improve the well-being of your nation, you're doing. Find, you know, polit politicians want their own language. I, I found this very much with, you know, this happened when the coalition came in and David Cameron had talked about the big society, which is all about charities playing a bigger role. Yes. Nick Clegg, who was Deputy Prime Minister, the head of the Liberal Democrats, was like, no, 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 we're not going there. Those are conservative words, right? So, you know, people get very uh, attached to certain words, and sometimes you have to find a new language. Okay. Well-being has been attached with kind of middle class, spas, all of that. Therefore, we need to find a language which appeals across the board, which actually says the well-being is about the things that we talked about, safety, mm -hmm. security, mental health, you know, all of those things are much more fundamental to everybody's lives. Yeah, and I think it's a really important point you make. Um, you know, it, it, and reiterating from my perspective, you know, well-being, we are the world well-being movement is about every single person in society, which kind of brings me to a slightly different question because, of course, I've been focusing a little bit on the role of policymakers, the role of politicians. What about each and every one of us in society? What's our role? We don't all work for the civil service and we, we certain many of us actually are not experts on politics. Um, <laughs> what can each and every one of us do? So first of all, number one, look after your own well-being. Um, that will be important. And, and what does that mean? Well, think about the things that, that really matter to you and that make you feel good about yourself. You know, for me, it's like there's always this element of altruism. There's always this element of if you're doing something to help other people, that's just, you know... Uh, that's that's massively important. I mean, I spent most of my life as a civil servant. Salaries in the civil service are never that great. I'm probably richer now than I've ever been. Does that money actually improve my well-being very much? Hardly at all. Um, and, you know, I, I really think that I don't want a shiny new car. I've never had a shiny new car. Um, those sorts of consumerist things are not what matter to me. It's being able to make a difference and as large a stage as possible. You know, you can do stuff for yourself, sure. Um, think about your physical and mental health. Think about, are you spending your time doing things you really care about? You know, I have no excuses now uh, because, you know, I don't need to be paid and I'm doing, everything I do is because I really enjoy it. You know, pro bono economics, it's really great. Uh, I do lots of stuff in economics because I love doing economics, right? So, you know, for me, those are the things that matter. You know, use your time well yeah. and in it, try and make sure that you are making the world a better place and you're helping other people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's worth saying that, you know, at different stages in life and at different oh. stages, you know, of course, there will be people listening who actually are struggling to make ends meet financially. And, you know, that's, that's you know, 
they may not have time at the moment. You know, the sandwich generation who are looking after small children whilst also maybe providing a caring role for, for elderly parents may not have time to volunteer for charities, but actually, of course, what they're doing is exactly. is indeed devoting their time. So I think it's thinking laterally in some ways about what we mean by, you know, supporting others. And I love where you started, the old uh, put your own life jacket on first, right? <laughs> yeah, sort yourself out, but then think about yeah. others. You know, those people who are caring for uh, their parents, brackets, doesn't show up in GDP. Another failing, right? Yeah. Um, so yes, you know, it, it's, it's first of all, get yourself in a good state because I think if you're in a good state, you're in a good position to help other people. Yeah. Then think about how you can, through your own actions, influence at a broader level. You know, everyone apart from me uh, that listening to this has a vote. Uh, I'm not allowed to vote as a member of the Are House you still not allowed to vote? No, gosh, House how interesting. Members. You learn something new every day. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's Hasselords, um, seriously mentally ill, and criminals. Uh, so, but v voting, you know, taking part in uh, uh, in that whole democratic process, massively important. You know, if you think about the struggles that people went through in the past to get a vote, you know, yeah. please use it. Please think about, in your view, which which uh, which party is going to make the biggest difference yeah. and help. And then, you know, thinking about can you get involved in your community. Can you get involved through your work and improve? You know, people spend a lot of their lives at work. Yeah. How can we improve um, well-being at work? And I know Jan has spent a lot of time thinking about this, and uh, that's really important. And and it's one of those things where you can make a difference to everyone you work with. You know, I, I've always said my role in whatever job I'm in is that when I leave, it gets better. Yes. Right? Yeah. I, it's the thing that I always kind of, as a Manchester United fan, think Alex Ferguson was the living proof that a brilliant leader while he was there, but when he left, it all fell apart. And like to me, it's like when I leave any particular thing, my v vision of success would be that I've developed the people that work for me yeah. and they end up being much better than me and they move it on to the next level. That's wonderful to hear. And we've had um, a number of workplace wellbeing experts on this podcast series. So um, I agree. I mean, you know, I've said it before, but most of us spend over a third of our waking lives at work. So it really, really is an important place to ensure we are happy. We are enjoying ourselves. And if we're not happy, it's okay to look around and look yeah. and move to, to, to a different role. I'd love to talk very quickly, your chair of pro bono economics. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about what pro, pro bono economics is and what you do. <laughs> Most certainly. Um, so if you think about pro bono lawyers, they're always there and they will give their services uh, to help yeah. uh, people who couldn't afford it, right? Pro bono economics, what we've done is it was it was partly to get economists to understand that there's a world out there. You know, I was uh, at the time head of treasury yeah. and I wanted them to understand there were people who were homeless yeah. and it wasn't just a statistic and there were people on benefits and they had disabilities and all sorts, you know, who had a, bad breaks in life. They were unlucky. Um, you know, they'd had maybe no parents or poor parents. So, you know, all sorts of things happened to them which weren't their fault. Mm -hmm. How could we help them? And so economists working with charities to try and help those charities become more effective wow. to measure what they were doing. I mean, you know, and, and when we started, nobody thought about measuring the well-being of the people they were affecting. Now, of yeah. course, that's a kind of basic. And we run courses for charities on how you can measure your impact on the well-being of the people you're, you're trying to help. Yeah. And also, 
It's the volunteers themselves. That's the great double benefit. So the volunteers, in terms of you know working with a homeless charity, actually feel better about themselves. So that's the double benefit. And we've moved on from all of that project work, which we started with, to say, well, what have we learned from this about the sector as a whole? So I chaired a, 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 a it's called the Law Family Commission on Civil Society, which looked at how do we improve the effectiveness of civil society? How do we uh, expand philanthropy? Yeah. How do we, you know, all sorts of things about how do we get governments to understand there's a role for the charitable sector? Yes. You know, yeah. I mean, economists, we're the worst things. You know, I taught economics at the start. We have the private sector and we have the public sector. We have this debate about should it be nationalized or not? Hang on, there's a, there's a third sector and actually calling it third denigrates it. There's another part of the world which is all about charities, and that's hugely important. And for many things, charities are better than both the private sector and government because they're closer to people, closer to communities, and they can actually do things in a way that, that both governments and the private sector find quite difficult. Wow. I mean, it, it's so powerful. Um, listening to your illustrious career, I mean, you know, you really have had the most incredible career. What's your proudest achievement? Oh, let's be clear about the career. <laughs> Luck. Number one, you know, I was just lucky and got in the right places at the right time. Um, Proudest achievement, I mean, I look back on the Northern Ireland work, which was just, to me, it was like you're putting country first, and that was fantastic. So there have been things with, you know, I mean, working with Gordon Brown through the global financial crisis, a massive thing, and seeing someone who had actually a great historian who actually really cared about not repeating the mistakes that led us into the Great Depression. Yeah. You know, those big things which really mattered across the world and seeing that through. I think I've been really lucky to be a, a kind of an observer. It, it's just very satisfying when you can help something which makes a big difference to a lot of people. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it, it's incredible. What's your advice? We're moving into an election year in the UK. What's your advice for the incoming government? It might be the same government. It might be a different indeed, government. Indeed. Um, what's your advice? Well, I'd, I'd love them to have a proper success measure, which was, you know, when I talked about helping a prime minister to succeed yeah. in life, you know, we started with this. Yeah. What does success mean? And for a lot of them, they think it's, uh, is it about growth? You say, growth of what? growth of GDP or is it GDP per capita? And it's like, actually, not really. You know, the, the most successful economies in the world, the ones where people are happiest are the Scandinavians. You know, what can we learn from the Scandinavians? Actually, you know, they, are, they tend to be high-tax, high-spend yeah. economies in general. Uh, they care about public services. Um, you know, they care about their children's well-being. There are lots of things they do right um, so for me, it would be, you know, for once, you know, because it's really hard when you're a civil servant and you, you don't know what the government's really trying to achieve. They come in with lists of tasks yeah. rather than outcomes. Yeah. So I'd say, tell us what the outcomes are that you want, and then we can give you options about how best to achieve them. That you will know, make a huge difference. Isn't that a wonderful motto for life as well? Whether it be in the workplace, whether it be individually, we can all get het up in firefighting and focusing on tasks, yeah. but actually, what's the outcome we're trying to achieve here? Um, with such brilliant advice, I'm going to move to what I like to call the rapid fire round. Oh. So, okay. imagine you had a time machine. I, I ask everybody this question, by the way, because 
I am obsessed with time travel um, and Back to the Future too, particularly. But imagine you had a time machine right. and you could move, hop 30 years into the future. Right. What is the change that you would like to see in the world? Uh, God, I'd like to see the world survive. That'd be number one, that we'd actually done something about climate change yes. uh, and that the world was there. We'd got nuclear fusion or we'd found a way of getting clean energy to be cheaper than fossil fuels and all that coal and oil would be in the ground and gas. Uh, that would be my number one. Uh, number two would be that we were starting to think about uh, this whole process of well-being and that we were getting rid of some of the consumerist things which I think have got in the way and that people were thinking about what do they want to do with their lives, uh, how can they make their lives meaningful uh, rather than have I got a bigger car than my neighbour, yes. uh, you know. Gosh, yes. And of course, they're both interlinked because exactly. by definition, future generations cannot have well-being if we don't look after our planet. So I, I always say that, you know, looking after our planet is a key component of well-being. Um, I'd like you to hop back in, in, uh -huh. into your DeLorean um, and go back and meet with your 21-year-old self. What advice would you give that boy? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, me at 21 was pretty chaotic. I have to say, I just sta I just started uh, post-grad work at Oxford. And uh, I actually was really interested in a lot of these subjects uh, and got diverted into other things. Uh, I wish I'd spent a lot more time on, in those days it was called welfare economics. Right, right. Yes. And And I had a, uh, a, a tutor at Nuffield called Ian Little, who and and Amartya Sen was was there as well, and Amartya Sen's one of my kind of heroes in economics. And I wish I'd thought more carefully about this, about the big goals. Yeah. Of course, the way the economics profession was going was like you were building ever ever cleverer mathematical models. Mm -hmm. We were using fancy econometrics to come up with small small things, which which to be honest could get you publications, which is what mattered in an academic world. And as opposed to thinking big and thinking about, actually, some of the fundamentals of this stuff I'm working with don't seem to make much sense because basic economics was all about individuals maximizing their own utility and then society was the sum of everybody's utility. And it was like very individual-centered. It was very, we were all rational. We never made mistakes. We had perfect foresight in many respects. You know, we weren't short-sighted. Um, yeah, it was just a world that I say was was completely fine if the world was full of robots. But for a world full of humans, I'd say let's think about economics for humans. Is that a change you're seeing now with the current generation kind of coming out with doctorate degrees, etc.? Um, some of them. <laughs> some of them. I'd say the economics profession, to my mind, still has too many people uh, wasting their time on things which, which are really somewhat irrelevant. So I would just urge... I heard economists to think about bigger picture things yeah. and and how they can make the world a better place. Yeah, brilliant. So, next rapid fire question: mm -hmm. What do you do daily to improve your own well being? Oh goodness, um, I try and do something every day which I I kind of feel makes a difference. Mm -hmm. um, so this podcast today. Um, I mean, you know, there's there's something every day yeah. and and it's the people you surround yourself with you know i'm really lucky in the everywhere i work i have people that 
I really respect and that just helped me make a difference, you know. What's the best advice you've ever received? Best advice I've ever received? Um, best advice I got, and it's very concrete, was uh, when I was, uh, so after Oxford, I went on to be a lecturer at the University of Glasgow. And I was teaching in the Adam Smith building. And I had a professor called Tom Wilson. Okay. And he'd just given me tenure. And I was uh, busy thinking about what's the next kind of article I'm going to write with this wonderful mathematical model and a bit of econometrics. And he said to me, Gus, get out. You're never going to be uh, uh, a Nobel Prize winning economist. Um, get out and make a difference. Go and do something in the real world. Go and work for government as an economist and help improve policy. And I was, I was completely shattered because all my life, you know, Warwick and Oxford, the definition of success, this is why the success measures matter to me. So yes. the definition of success that all those academics told me was being a good academic. And that every other kind of job in life was degrees of failure. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly I had someone saying to me, actually, you know, you don't have to be an academic uh, to change things. In fact, you could do a lot more by working in the civil service. So that's where I went. And that's what why... incredible advice. I mean, look at what you've achieved as a result of that <laughs> advice. My goodness. Well, <laughs> I think he was almost certainly right that I wouldn't have got a Nobel Prize. Uh, so, yeah. Wow. What do you wish you'd learned sooner? Oh, that, um, I mean, that actually you can make a difference uh, and that, you know, keep at it. And, and quite often, you know, you can be bashing away at things and it looks like nobody's listening. And this has happened to me in, in all sorts of aspects of economic policy through my time. And I thought nobody, nobody understands me. I thought, you know, the start of monetarism, I was like, why do we, you know, if we care about inflation, shouldn't we target inflation rather than the money supply? Eventually someone gets there. So, yeah, I've always thought if you think you're right, you know, yes, be careful about looking at the evidence to make sure you're not suffering from confirmation bias and all those things. But actually, you know, keep with it, stick with it. Eventually the world comes back. And, and if it is right, you know, you'll be, you'll be very happy you start with it. So we can all make a difference. Well, I'm going to ask you one final question. What, in your opinion, is the key to living a good life? Oh, key to living a good life is to feel that uh, you've helped others. It's got to be. It's not about you. Um, if you've made a difference, um, it's the impact you've had on the world. Um, yeah. I mean, the idea that living a good life is about how much money you've earned or anything like that. It's just, you have to look back and think, does, does that make any difference to anything? So I think leaving the planet slightly better than you found it and slightly more likely to continue would be a good thing. Well, what a wonderful place to finish this interview. Thank you so much, Lord Gus O'Donnell. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you today. Uh, thank you. It's been great fun. Improved my well-being. No, Aww. No. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>